Today's a really awesome day and I, I am pumped. I'm excited because we're starting something big today. We're starting a series called New Normal. And this is just a series of series. Because what we're getting ready to do is to dive into the most influential talk on Western civilization ever. We're getting ready to dive into something that I don't know how long this is going to happen. I I said this at the last service. Um, We're going to be in this series for God knows how long. And I I really mean that. Because what we're getting ready to dive into is this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to spend from this day forward until, unless Jesus comes back sometime in between now and then. But for the foreseeable future, uh, we're going to be in here. I, I know at least till Christmas. This is where we're going to be. And the fascinating thing about this is it's going to be able to break down into other series where we're going to talk about things that attack our heart. We're going to be able to talk about things that are around mental health because as you go through these three chapters in the book of Matthew, what you see is Jesus talking about every aspect of our lives. And we're going to go through this word by word, verse by verse. This is something I would say, go ahead and get a new journal. That's just like your Sermon on the Mount journal as we journey through this together. And I want to ask you a question before we dive into this that hopefully is what kind of can latch you in to this. Here's a question. Why do you come to church on Sunday? Like why? Like, and maybe, maybe just pause and let's be honest there. Is it because somebody made you? Is it because you didn't have anything better to do? Is it because you just, what you grew up doing? Is it because, you know, you, is somebody in your family, a your grandma or a mama, uh, they went on to be with heaven and you know this honors their legacy? Why, why do you come to church? And remember, we are the church, but why do you gather together on a day like this to, to sing songs and to be able to open up God's word together and, and, and have it be taught to us? See, my hope is that we as people would say, we long, to answer that question, we long to know the truth about Jesus. And when we gather together, this is a place where we can get the truth about Jesus. And again, not what we want to hear, not what's convenient, but the truth. And here's the thing that I'm just going to forewarn you. For some of you, as we dive into passages in the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be your ticket out of the faith you thought you had. Because there may be some things in here that you hear and you go, Mm-mm, now I actually know what real Christianity is and I actually don't want that. And some of you, for the first time ever, you're going to get a small taste of what real Christianity is, and it's gonna whet an appetite for you that is never gonna burn brighter, hotter than it ever has before. And so my hope and my prayer is that we can gather around God's word, go through this word by word, and that we can truly learn who Jesus is, what he says, and how he speaks into our lives. Because listen, this life that we have here is too short to just go on a guess that we're actually living the life that Jesus has called us to live. Just based off of what some preacher says or what Max Lucado or Francis Chan said in a sermon on the radio or what book we read or what mama told us or whatever. Like we really need to go and lean into Jesus. And so if there's anything I can tell you to do over the course of the next weeks, months, years is to to go take Matthew chapter five, six and seven and commit them to your heart. Put them in your quiet time. Tattoo them on your face. I don't know what you need to do, but put these words in front of us so we can know how Jesus speaks in to our lives. I'm gonna pray they're going to read how Jesus opens this thing up. This most influential, biggest talk. Some people would argue the most influential three chapters of scripture. We're going to dive into this together. Let's pray and open his word. Jesus, we love you. 
And it is a blessing to be able to gather here, God, with people in person, with people online, and and knowing that, God, we are just such a small drop in the water as the local congregation that is McDonough Christian Church. But to know that all around the world, some of even at this very hour, people are gathering around your word to figure out, God, hopefully, what does it mean to live the Jesus life here as in heaven? What does it mean to live this out right here where we are? And I pray that as we dive into this word and as we go on this journey for the sake of these, or for the course of these next few months, God, that your spirit would begin to awaken new things in us and you would not leave us as we are today. In your name, amen. All right, if you got a Bible, go to Matthew 5. I'm gonna be saying that a lot from here on out. (laughs) You can just get used to hearing that almost every single Sunday. Go to Matthew chapter 5 until we get to 6 and then until we get to 7. So we're gonna be in 5 for a while. Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 1. This is how Jesus starts. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, these words, church, these words were the things where Jesus showed up on the hillside and he said, by launching into this, what you knew is normal is normal no more. From this moment forward, things are changing. And it's fascinating that the climate that we're in right now with all this COVID and all this pandemic and all these other types of things, we hear these words new normal a lot. And if it's not easy, we can get lulled into thinking that this shift of what's happening in our society is the biggest shift into a new normal that's ever happened. But I'm here to say, I don't think it is. I think the new normal that we're getting ready to enter into as far as what life will be like pales in comparison to the new normal that Jesus brought on the scene after he spoke these words. And I believe our only hope of making it through the new normal that COVID is going to bring into our lives is by actually looking backwards into the new normal that Jesus initiated through his sermon. And so I would say the new normal that COVID is bringing is nothing compared to the new normal that Christ brought when he spoke these words. And what I'm gonna do in this passage and and what I'm gonna do is try to start into this is hopefully be able to set the stage because you're not going to be able to understand what's really going on here if you don't understand the context and so today you may feel like hey there wasn't a whole lot of scripture because we're really going to again we're going to lean into one of the the very first beatitude here in in verse three and we're going to dive hard into this but I want to spend some good quality time setting up the context so you know who Jesus was talking to What was going on in that day and age? What was going on in that culture? So that we asked the question, what was going on there before I apply this to my life here? And today I hope that you can have the same outcome and result that the people who heard this message had. 
Now that, that outcome may not happen today. It may happen when we finish however 30, I don't know how many weeks it takes to get through this. But what happened is at the, if you go all the way to the end, you go to, ver, you go to chapter seven at the end, it says that they were amazed at what he was teaching, that they were amazed at the authority at which he was teaching these things. And how we translated the Greek word that's really there into amazed is actually a pretty weak translation. It really or better translates their minds were blown. It, it translates like they were out, what they had just heard was out of their mind. Meaning that they had never heard anything like that before and it was beyond their place of comprehension. It blew their minds. And the thing about this whole, these three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, is scholars, both religious and secular, believe and are all pretty much in agreement that what he teaches in these three chapters have had more influence on Western civilization than any words ever spoken. So regardless of where you're at in faith or religiosity or Christianity or whatever you're trying to explore right now, this is a time where we actually go, hey, hold on. If I want to understand at least what Christianity is, I need to stop here and lean in. So I want to paint a picture. I want to give you some of the context because what Jesus does in this sermon is he essentially says, from this moment forward, things are changing. From this moment forward, he says the status quo as we know it is different. And what he does here, and I love this, is he actually flips religion completely upside down. He pushes on his butt and has never recovered since. Thank goodness. And today, I want you to see who we are. We're going to discover through all this that really the world that Jesus lived in and the world that he spoke this sermon into existence really wasn't a whole lot different than what we live in right now. For instance, in Jesus' day, and as he was teaching this, and you can relate to this, there was two groups of people, and you know them, the haves and the have-nots. The haves and the have-nots. And that's kind of how people broke people into. And even here in, in church today, you feel like you're in one of those categories, right? So let's talk about the haves. The haves, and, and again, these were in Jesus' day, and they're here in ours. The haves were those who were experiencing good things. Good things. You know these people. You know what I'm talking about. The people with the nice house, the nice car, the nice kids, hair always parts the right way, going to nice colleges, have good hair, have good health, have good jobs, have good outcome. They're the ones who have the good things in life. And you look at those good things that those people have in life, the people who are the haves. You look at the good things that they have. And in Jesus' day and age, and even sometimes here in us, as we can allow the prosperity gospel to kind of fluctuate into our lives, we would look at the people who have the good things. And we say, the fact that they have those good things is in direct connection to the fact that God thinks they're good. And God's face is shining upon them. God has made them the head and not the tail. God is happy. God is excited. God loves them. And we look at their life. And because of the good things that they have and how good is getting gooder, we look at their lives and we go, they are blessed. And then there's the have-nots. And the have-nots is everybody else. Everybody else who may be poor, may be struggling with sickness, may be hurting, may, may have mental health issues, may have disabilities, the people who were excluded, the people who had made certain mistakes, the people who had committed certain sins, not all sins, just the ones who were on the haves list of sins you couldn't commit. They're the people who had had certain things done to them or had done certain things, whether it was their fault or someone else's. These are the people who had been told that they didn't have anything to contribute, whether it was to society, whether it was to a family. These are the people that more often than not likely believed that something was wrong with them. And that lack of goodness 
Good things happening, good jobs, good money, good health, good kids, good marriages, good relationships, good whatever. The lack of those good things in that day and age and here sometimes in ours, that equated to God is not good with me. I'm not good enough for him. God hates me. God's against me. I don't matter to him. I have no use. And definitely... If you were looked at in that day and age as a have not, or even in this day and age as a have not, nobody is looking at you and going, you are blessed because of what you don't have. Now, I want to help you understand why people saw each other through these lenses of have and have nots. So a few hundred years before Jesus is burst onto the scene and he preaches this sermon there was this huge empire. There were actually two huge empires, the Syrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. And they came into Israel and what they did, because the Israel kingdom, because they quit following God and quit listening to God, they ended up taking the people of God captive. But they didn't take everybody. So the Babylonians come in. And instead of going, we're just gonna round up all you guys, we're gonna take you back to Babylon, we're gonna have you guys there. What they do is they go and take the halves. They take the people with money. They take the people with education. They take the best and brightest. They take the women with childbearing hips, the beautiful women. They take take the people who have something in their eyes to offer their society. And they round up all of those people who are the haves and they take them away. And they leave the have-nots behind because they have nothing to offer. They're the ones with Down syndrome and mental disabilities and disfigurements diseases, things that can't be cured, kind of crazy, on the outskirts, people who have reputations as sinners and reputations as, as evil, they leave them behind because they were worthless to them. And so you have these two groups of people. Now what happens is the people who are the haves who get taken into the Babylonian captivity. And again, you can read about this in your Bible in the book of Daniel. You see this with, with guys like Daniel, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were guys who were haves who were brought out of the society there in Jerusalem and brought into the captivity. And what happens here with the haves is they begin to look at themselves as the true Israelites, the true Jews, the ones with the true religion. And because they've now found their place in this room, they they rallied themselves together as God's true people. Meanwhile, all the have-nots who are left back in Israel are facing devastation. There's famine across their land. It's kind of this rogue warfare where people rise up and kings are rhyming up. Uh, you, you see this book written called Lamentations that it chronicles what's going on in this really depressing, sad time as, as the halves are in captivity and the remnant is left there in Israel. And there's a Hebrew word that I want to teach you today that was the character definition that was given to the people who were the have-nots. It's this word, anawim. Anawim. Say that with it. Let's say it together. Anawim. So there was this Anawim. And these were the people who were defined as the throwaway people. The ones who were looked at as worthless. That that nobody really cared for. There wasn't really a use for. They were just the throwaway people. And by the time that Jesus shows up on the scene, several hundred years after all this has taken place, the Anawim had almost essentially become a curse word. When you thought about these people, you thought about uh, feces that you would wipe off the bottom of your shoe. These were the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the lows, the people that you would just discard. The worthless people were the Anawim. Now there are some... Catholic and Christian websites and ministries who have tried to pretty this word up and kind of redefine it as the people who are the lowest of the low and the poorest of the poor who never let go of God like the the Mother Teresa's of the world. 
But in Jesus' day, when you heard the word anoim, you didn't think of anything positive. Good things didn't come to mind. It meant that you were a throwaway person, not blessed by God, and it meant you were worthless. Now, time out. Now we're starting to relate because we may have felt like that. Many of us have probably had those moments in life where we've actually looked in the mirror. And because we know our own sins, we know our own shortcomings, we are our own mistakes, we know what it's like to feel like the scum of the earth. We've had those moments after a knockdown drag out fight or after we committed that sin that we said we would never commit again where we've looked in the mirror and we said we are a piece of Anawim. You've had those moments. You felt like that. You remember way back in grade school, they line everybody up to play kickball and then you get, you know, the big kid, the small kid, the fast kid, the quick kid and then there's you. And in that moment, the team would rather be uneven than put you on their team. So we'd rather not have you on our team. We'd rather have less kids than have you on our team. Now we can go and tell the kids, I'll oh, just get over it. It's just a game of kickball. But you got on the bus or you walked home that day going, what's wrong with me? You had the baseball game or the recital. And you looked in the stands and you watched after the game as little Billy and little Timmy and little Jill and all of their families showed up and their dad was there saying, great job, great job, great job. And you looked around and nowhere was your dad. And you said, why, why am I not enough for him to show up here? And you went to high school. And you walked down a hallway. And you heard some upperclassmen laugh. Because your family couldn't afford those shoes. Or afford that pair of pants that actually fit. And because they could see your socks. Something so small, so insignificant, something that us as parents would just like to write off and say, get over it. To a teenager is going, oh man, why am I not enough? Why, why can't I fit in? Where, where do I belong? And then it trickles into serious things because you know how teenagers are. We did some stupid stuff to try to start fitting in. And in that, we probably got molested. We probably got taken advantage of. We probably did some things that we never should have done. We went to places we never should have went. We found ourselves going, why am I not enough just as I am? Why do I have to do these things to make myself into something else? It's that moment, maybe even when kids where, and our parents, they couldn't wipe the look off their face fast enough, but it was that moment where you looked them in the eyes and they knew that they were sad that you were their kid. It's that moment when you look up and you're at one more wedding you're one, more, you're one more bridesmaid dress, you're one more best man, and it seems like everybody has somebody but you. Anawim. It's that moment, parents, where your kid has looked at you and they meant it and said, I hate you. Anawim. It's that moment you get downsized, fired, you're too old, your job's obsolete. Anawim. It's that moment when your husband or wife, or now ex-husband or wife, comes in and they say, um, they sit you down and say, hey, this, this isn't working. And, and for a long time, I know we made some vows, I know we made some promises, but um, for a long time, I, I've been in love with somebody else. And this is over. Anawim. It's that first night, sleeping in your bed alone after the funeral. Anawim. It's that burning feeling in your face and that, that nauseousness in your stomach after the first time you hit your girlfriend or your wife. Anawim. It's that confusion around sexuality and going to have these feelings, to have these emotions, but man, I cannot talk to anybody about this. And so I'm gonna stuff this down and I'm gonna be the most popular, most lonely person at the exact same time. It's that person with the secret sin. 
that you thought you would take to the grave, but you didn't, and it was found out, and now you feel the tsunami of shame rush over you. Anawim. It's that thing that you just settled on and said, this is my life. I'm just going to struggle with this till I die. You see, look in the mirror, you see the scars, the mistakes, the bruises, the guilt, the shame, the failure, the fear, the insecurities, and you think, I'm just Anawim. Throwaway person. See, the world back then has a lot of similarities with the world right now. Because the human condition in here and in here hasn't gone anywhere. What's out here may have changed, but what's in here and what's in here is exactly the same as it was on that hillside in Galilee as it is in this room. So what I want you to know is that what Jesus was doing in that day is as he sits them down on this hillside, this is, the, this is the group of people who are in the crowd. And what Jesus does to this group of people in this crowd says, hey, what you knew was normal is normal no more. And he pulls a pin back on a grenade of God's grace and he launches it in and says, blessed are the poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of God. And he changes everything. This is amazing news. The first words out of his mouth. What he is saying is new things are possible for all of you. He's saying that you might want to rethink how you think about everything because are you ready for this? There are no throwaway people, none, no such thing. He says, I- I'm changing things. I'm entering into this scene and I'm stepping in and I'm changing it. I'm bringing you a new normal. And my new normal means that there is no such thing as a throwaway person, no matter how much of their life they'd had to try to throw away or how much everybody else's junk has been thrown on them. There is no such thing as a throwaway person. He says, I've come to make it available, this kingdom of heaven, to anybody who wants it. You don't have to work your way into it. Matter of fact, you can stumble your way into it. And it's something you can come to just as you are, especially if you're an Anawim. It doesn't matter how rejected you feel or how alone you feel or how hidden your life feels. It doesn't matter what you've done or what other people have done to you. It doesn't matter what you've lost or what's been taken from you along the way. I have an announcement. God does not hate you. You're not cursed. He loves you. And he wants you back. He wants you back in his life because he's always had a place for you. He has a place for you right now. And as we dive into this series, as we walk into this, you're gonna discover that all along you've had a place and you still do. And I wanna show you some proof, all right? Because I don't want you to take my word for it. If you got a Bible, open back up. Go to Matthew 5 and then go one chapter backwards to four and go to the very last paragraph in chapter four. Again, we're gonna set up some context here. Matthew Chapter 4, down to verse 23. Matthew 4, 23. This is what happens before the sermon happens. This is the pre-sermon. Jesus went, if you're not aware where we're at, Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness of the people. Those are Anawim folks. News about him spread all over Syria. And the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain and demon possession and having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. All the Anoim flocking to him. He is a rabbi unlike any rabbi they have ever seen, and they are flocking to him. Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, that's like a 10-city region. Large crowds from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan all followed him. Now we enter into chapter 5. Now, when he sees the crowds, 
And sometimes I think we can read that 5-1 and go, oh, that's just a big crowd of people who had all their crud together. No, it's the crowd from 423. It's the crippled, the paralyzed, the sick, the people with mental illness, the people who are broken and honor women, left out and walked by on the side of the road, marginalized. That's the crowd who's sitting down in the grass today to hear this message from him. And my prayer is that you'd be humble enough to admit that you're one of them too as we come to this today. And so in verse three, all right, let's start with five one. We'll go through it. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them saying, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spend the rest of the time we have unpacking that first beatitude of blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I want you to see before we start packing, unpacking the specific words here is Jesus is beginning to express to them what this thing is of a life of following after him. What true religion really is. And what I want you to see here is fascinating. It's a do something versus a be something. See, up until this moment, you were a have because of what? Because of what you had. And you had what you had because of what you had done. And because you had done good things, you've got the favor of God, and that's why you had what you had, and you were a have. And if you did not have something, that was because you didn't do something. You didn't do enough to make God smile on you, so he wasn't giving you what you had. So you were a have not. And what Jesus does is he flips this on the scene. And he says, look at my first lines of my, my message. Nothing is about what you do. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He goes right after identity, not after action. And I want you to understand that as we journey through this, that is what I need you to be consumed with. We live in a world that's so consumed with do something and it misses out on be something. See, these Beatitudes, what he does, and I want you to understand this because this is what we're gonna get ready to unpack and this is why I need you to lean in. I need you to not miss Sundays. I need you to, if you gotta watch online, watch online, whatever you gotta do because what he walks through in these Beatitudes is he's saying these are the necessary elements to a Christian life. Like if you're gonna follow me, if you wanna understand my teaching and surrender your life, these are what is necessary in the same way that you couldn't pull hydrogen out of water and still have water. He's saying you can't pull out poor in spirit and still be Christian. You can't pull out meekness and still be Christian. And so he's saying, these are the necessary elements. If you're, going to put, if you're going to have faith in me, first necessary element, you're going to live my life the way I'm calling you to live it, these beatitudes are what it means. And again, these are things that flip religion, flip society on its head, and gives us the ultimate new normal. So when he says, blessed, here's what he's not talking about. He's not talking about driving a brand new BMW, living in a four-sided brick home with kids who don't need braces. That's not what he means when he says, Blessed. When he says blessed, uh, I wish I had time to unpack all the Greek and everything else, but here's, here's a simple way to understand what I believe he is saying when he says blessed. It's God's face looking my way, pleased. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to live a blessed life? It's knowing that God's face is looking my way, pleased. God's face looking my way, pleased. That's a blessed life. I know some of us can be sitting here going, man, there's not more to that. No, there's not more to that. 
to know that the God of all creation, the God who created stars, moons, skies, put the mountains in there, created sex, created sugar, created carbs, created all these amazing things, created the fried chicken that you're going to go eat today after church. The God who put all of that into existence, he is looking at you and going, proud of you. You're mine. Yeah, I'm pleased. And you know what this is like. You were a kid at one point. And you, you as a child, you did something right. And what did you do? You looked at mom and dad. Are they going to smile back? And they smiled back. And you knew in your heart that you did something right. But what you did right was contingent on what they looked back at. And so if they look back, and no matter how good you thought you did, if they look back with a scowl on their face saying, that really isn't that good, your brother did it better, it's going to change how you are. But when you do the thing that you thought was right, and it is awesome, and you look at the face of mom or dad, and their face is smiling back, what does it do to what you already felt? It magnifies it. And that's what God is wanting to do in our hearts. To say, hey, even the good that you're thinking you're doing right now is because I've put my gifts inside of you. And look to me in this, and you'll see that I'm, I'm so proud. I'm pleased. And you're living the blessed life. We see this when Jesus gets baptized. Now, I need you to know this about Jesus. When Jesus gets baptized, a lot of times we think, like, Jesus did a lot of awesome stuff, and he got a black belt in Christianity, and that's why he got baptized. But what happens is Jesus gets baptized before anybody has been, you know, like, saved, healed, any of that kind of stuff has happened. Like, he gets baptized. And the whole Trinity shows up on the scene as he meets his cousin John the Baptist in the water. And the Father parts heaven speaks audibly. I think Jesus hears this. Everybody around him hears it and then goes, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It says it's his announcement that Jesus, before deaf people are healed, before demons are cast out, before the cross, before the empty tomb, I love you. I'm pleased. Why? Because you're my son. He says the same thing to us if our faith is in his son. Why? Because of who you are. I want you to know what this blessed is. This blessed is grace. And I'm going to try to give you a lot of definitions of grace because there are so many. There is no, I could spend hours upon hours of my life unpacking what grace is to you. And I'm going to do that a lot as your pastor. But I want to help you see what grace I believe is showing up in this passage as. Grace is God's verdict, blessed. That's God saying, and again, as judge, as ruler, as authority, looking at us and going, blessed, blessed stamp, right on the forehead, blessed. And he does that coming before the performance. So he gives his verdict of blessed before any of the performance, which that's pretty crazy, right? That's not the religion you grew up in. That's not the house you grew up in. But that's the new normal that Jesus is bringing on the scene. And what I want you to understand here is it doesn't just stop with being blessed, having God's face, God's favor shining upon you, because he actually says, blessed are thee, So you don't just roll out of bed and boom, I'm blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So what in the world does that mean? I'm gonna try to do this throughout the course of this series and as we navigate through this, and this is just helpful exegesis, this is how we should appropriate God's word when we come to it. Don't just interpret God's word by how you feel or your emotions or what somebody else has said. The best thing to use to interpret God's word is, please bless me, God's word. Thank you, church. Some of you knew it. The best thing to interpret God's word is God's word. So we take a passage here and go, what in the world does that mean? And we go, I wonder if there's another passage that will illuminate and give light to this. And actually, there is. It's in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66. If you got a Bible, turn there. I want to show you this. Isaiah 66, one through two. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I think this gives us a good idea. 
This is what the Lord says. This is God talking to one of his prophets. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. (laughs) Then I love the questions that God asks. Where is the house you will build for me? Saying, your whole house is my footstool and you think you're gonna build a house for me. I built you, you can't build me houses. Where will my resting place be? Verse two. Has not my hand made all these things so that you came into being? Declares the Lord. Now listen to this. Don't miss this last part right here, this last sentence. Because this is this whole blessed thing is God's face looking on us with favor. And this is right here. These are the ones I look on with favor. These are the ones that my face shows up to pleased. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Those who tremble at my word. That's who he looks at. That's who he has favor. That's who he deems blessed. Those who, again, listen, listen, humble, (laughs) DQ'd like all of us, right out of the gate. Humble, contrite in spirit, and tremble at my word. And if you're like me, you read this and you feel contrition already. You're like, I don't, I don't even read your word enough. I don't, I, I'm not even trembling at it. We're like going, I'm not even there. And some of you look, we gotta be honest with that going, God, I'm not trembling at your word because I'm not even there. It's not a matter of like, am I reading it going, this is scary. I'm just like, not there. And some of you, that's the reason you're not going there because you're scared of what you'll find. I'm telling you, it may scare you at first, but just like love, just like your first kiss, just like riding a roller coaster for the first time, It might be scary at first, but joy comes after the fear. And in this passage, I want you to know that like, I'm so glad it says what it says because I would not find myself into the favor of God, into the presence of God any other way. If there was any other way, there'd be no hope for me. And I don't think there'd be any hope for you. If this said, those with the excellent prayer life and the consistency in Bible reading who tithe 11%, those are the ones I look to with favor. He wouldn't see me. If it said, those who are so courageous that they can withstand all temptation from past sins to future sins, they can withstand it all in my grace, he would have never seen me. If it said, the ones who I look to are those with faith to move mountains, who lead up and inspire people and encourage people and preach my word, those are the ones who my face shines upon. He would have never seen me. You may have thought he would see me because you see me up here. But he sees me everywhere else. And I do too. But thank God. He said, the ones who I do see are those who are humble and broke enough to know that when they, look, when they put their life and they look at my word as a mirror through which to see their life, and when they look at my reflection or their reflection according to my word, they realize how much of a difference there is. Those people who read that and go, Jesus I have no hope, I have no shot, unless you intercede, unless you change me, unless you do the things that only you can do in my life. I have no hope. Those are the ones he looks to, and I believe he looks fast for those. His eyes dart to those who go, I don't have what it takes. I can't do this. I have no chance. Now, some of you, I'm gonna try to do something here that hopefully will set you free a little bit, because some of you are brand new starting out Christianity. And And I've been there, and I still struggle with this at times. You got to this place where you feel like being a Christian is probably exhausting. 
Like there's this tension you feel in between. And Paul, he, he expressed some of this to us. He said, man, we have this dilemma where what we want to do, we don't do. And what we don't want to do, we do. And he said, man, there's a struggle and there's this tension. And, and here's what I want, I want you to understand. If you're feeling that, and, it, and it's overwhelming, almost to the place where you want to give up, I want to try to set you free. Here's what I need you to know. Like you've had those days, right? Where you've woke up in the morning and you just sat down, you got that cup of coffee going You even woke up extra early. You did the coffee the right way, pour over, drip coffee. You sat down, got in his word, and you just had his word just wash over your life. And you just began to get things out of it. And you saw things, and you began to pray, and you prayed like never before. And it just felt natural. There was You lost kind of track of time. You had chills going up your spine and down your spine. You get in the car. You go to work. You're even sitting in Henry County traffic praising God in the Toyota Camry. You get to work. You know, you take opportunities to, to pray for your friends. You, you, you know, you evangelize. You, you buy somebody's lunch. You feel good because you're being generous. You're doing all these things. You come home. You hug your kids. You kiss your wife. You don't kick the cat. You're doing all the things right, and you end the day going, Whew, I walk with God today. And then you wake up the next day, and you slept in. You overslept because you stayed up late and watching maybe a show you shouldn't have watched. You get in traffic. And it's everybody else's fault. And why do they schedule trains at 9 p.m. in Henry County? Like they know everybody's going to work. Why do they schedule a train for right in the middle of rush hour traffic? How dare they? You get to work complaining. Somebody says something. You snap at them. And you're like, it finds its way onto your, you know, permanent record. And and these things start to happen. And then you come home and and you, you start to put your head down at night. And you realize, dang, I messed up today. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And you feel that shame. You know why you feel that shame? You know what that's called, that feeling? That's called idolatry. Because you've made your joy in life contingent on your performance. You don't worship God, you worship how good you worship him. And that's a problem. And and some of you, that's the tension you're in. It's not worshiping God, you're worshiping how good you worship him. And your feelings, your emotions as a Christian is all contingent on how good you think you're doing. Not the fact that he said, it's finished. It's over. I've done it for you. Continue to realize that you, you wanna go and pray for your wife and evangelize the people. You gotta realize that if it was not for my grace poured out on you on a daily basis, you would not even be able to get in the camera. You would not even be able to tie your shoes. You would not be able to breathe out the words that you pray to me in the morning if it was not for my grace flooding into your life. So when he, and that's when he says, poor in spirit is realizing I'm bankrupt without you, Jesus. It's realizing it's not about how much I can heap up by my good deeds to try to earn some of these uh, gold stars. It's going, no, I'm bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. I would put that as my definition on this. So blessed is a person who gets to the place in life where they realize they're spiritually bankrupt. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To hit that place where you realize you are spiritually bankrupt. What does this look like? (laughs) <laughs> I love this story. You guys have heard the story of the prodigal son. Maybe if you're not even a part of church, you heard the story of the prodigal son. And we like to think the part where the prodigal son, he, he got blessed was when he got back to the house and he got on the big new robe and he got on the father's signet ring and he got the fattened calf. And like, okay, now he's experienced the blessed life because he's back in the father's house. Do you know when he was blessed? He was blessed elbows deep in pig slop 
when he real, that was the moment where blessing happened. That was the moment when he became poor in spirit and he realized, I used to have it all. The Father gave it all to me. And by my asking and by my living, I squandered everything and treated my father like he was dead to me. But now I know that the only hope I have is him. See, spiritual bankruptcy is that moment. And, and the, the turning point and the blessed, and this is what's crazy because you don't think about this. The blessed point of his story, he's still filthy. He still smells like pigs. He's probably still hung over. That's his blessed point. That's when he has the kingdom of heaven on tap. It's the teenage girl who after three pregnancy tests finally goes, yep, it's real. And broken in a bathroom at some friend's house, she cries out to God and says, you're my only hope. There's no way I can do this. There's no way this can happen. There's no way that these things can come to fruition. God, I need you. And again, 50 years ago, that'd be the teenager who we would kick out of our churches. Jesus goes, at that point, that's the person who's receiving the kingdom of heaven. They're blessed. They're poor in spirit. That's who I'm after. And again, this is where Jesus blows our mind. He shows up on the scene and says, this is the new normal. Prodigals in pits, teenagers with pregnancy tests, addicted abusers, whatever bottom looks like, their poverty in spirit, regardless of if it's a, a pastor who finally muscles up the courage to confess something to an elder board, whether it's somebody else who's coming out of a prodigal lifestyle, whether it's whatever, that's the moment where they're getting it. And that's the moment where Jesus says, you're blessed because you realized how bankrupt you are. And now you get the kingdom of heaven. And that's got to fire us up. Now, some of you, when you think kingdom of heaven, we think, okay, I can be poor spirit. Like I can just, I get to that place where I can just admit, I stink, I'm on a whim. I need you, Jesus. Well, then I get the kingdom of heaven. And when you hear kingdom of heaven, you think, okay, that's what I get when I die. So I just gotta wait it out until that happens. No, here's your new definition for kingdom of heaven. We don't talk about this enough at church, but here is your new definition of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is any place where what God wants is actually done. That's the kingdom of heaven. Your house, if you go home and vacuum husbands because it's your way of mutually submitting to your wife and serving alongside of her, your house just became the kingdom of heaven. You don't ever think about it like that, do we? I don't. Rarely, I, I, I will today. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is any place where what God wants done is actually done. And it doesn't start now. It doesn't start later. It starts now. As soon as you let what needs to be done be done, it starts. So will you today realize that you're bankrupt without him? And then ask him to come into your life. Ask him to be Lord of your life and come just like the prodigal knowing, I wasted all the good that I had. I have nothing in of myself. My only hope is to come in. And some of you are like the problem. You're gonna think you gotta come in. You gotta work your way back in. And God, I'll just, you know, what he, he came in. He said, God, just let me be a servant. Let me just serve you. Let me serve you, dad. Our dad's not like that. He says, you're still a son. There's nothing that can change your DNA. And by the blood of Christ, there's nothing that can change yours either. Come on in. Let's celebrate. Now, here's a question I wanna leave you with. You have that area of your life 
So if the kingdom of heaven is every area of your life and every place where what God wants to happen is really happening right now, and I believe the Holy Spirit's already bringing some of this to your attention, you have an area of your life where what you, you know good and well that what God wants to happen in that area of your life is not happening right now. And so that's a place where you have stiff-armed the kingdom of heaven. And you said, you know what, kingdom of heaven? I got it. I can do it. And this is why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because when you're rich in pride, you say, no, I got it. And the kingdom of heaven isn't going to enter in. It's not going to force its way. It's not going to strong arm its way into the places in our heart that are still prideful. And so Jesus says, my kingdom will come and invade every aspect of your life when you're spiritually broke enough. And I mean that like fiscally. When you're broke enough to admit that your way won't work and you'll let me in, then you'll see the kingdom of heaven everywhere your feet touch. Every, every chair your butt sits in will be a place where the kingdom of God is on earth as it is in heaven. And today we're going to get ready to uh, receive communion. That's a clear indicator that the God of the entire universe put his son on a cross. And there on the cross said, I'm going to actually... Turn my blessing away temporarily. Again, if we define blessing as the Father's face looking upon with love and favor, what you need to understand is what happens on the cross is the Father turns his face away from Jesus temporarily, and he had to do that because your sin, my sin, and the sin of all eternity past, all eternity in the moment, and all eternity future was on his son right then and there. And God turns his face away from his son so that he can see yours. And I pray that today in this moment, as you receive communion, you see his face looking at you. That you maybe today put faith in him for the first time. Some of you, the step you need to take is a step towards baptism. To say, I want my old life to be gone. I am broke. I am poverty of spirit. And I need to have my old life, my old sins washed away. And I need to be raised up anew, just like we're getting ready to see in these two women here today who are giving their life to Christ and being baptized. I'm gonna pray. I invite you to meet with Jesus, meet with your heavenly father. And then we're gonna celebrate life changes happening in these two young women. And then we're gonna sing together as a church one more time. Let's pray, meet with Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you bring us together in moments like this for change. I pray that somebody today would be so sick of what's been normal in their life that they would just be sick and tired of being sick and tired of, sick and tired of the tension, sick and tired of worshiping what they do instead of worshiping you and that they would be so over it that they take the step that you're leading them to right now. That they surrender whatever that area of your life is so that it could be a place where the kingdom of heaven comes to earth as it is in heaven. Move us, Jesus. Don't leave us here. In your name. Amen.